Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Dr. Murray Sabrin. Dr. Sabrin retired on July 1st, 2020 as Professor of Finance. On January 25th, 2021, the Board of Trustees awarded Dr. Sabrin emeritus status for his scholarship and professional contributions during his 35-year career. His book, Universal Medical Care from Conception to End of Life, The Case for a Single-Payer System, calls for the individual or family to be the single payer to restore the doctor-patient relationship. In his latest book, Navigating the Boom-Bust Cycle, an Entrepreneur's Survival Guide, was first published in October 2021. Sabrin is the author of Tax-Free 2000, The Rebirth of American Liberty, a blueprint on how to create a tax-free America in the 21st century, and why the Federal Reserve sucks. It causes inflation, recessions, bubbles, and enriches the 1%, which is also available on Amazon. Murray, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great being with you, talking freedom, which is what we desperately need in America. Yes, we do. And I think maybe let's talk a little bit about your latest book, about the business cycle. Number one, I think one of the things you you make a point of early in the book is the booms and busts, the recessions and the manias. Most people believe that this is part of, you just have to live with that if uh, you want a free market capitalism. And the freer it is, the, the more violent these things are going to be. Is that true? No, th- this is the great myth uh, that has been um permeating the economics profession and the political class for for decades, if not centuries. Uh, We know from history that the boom-bust cycle really began when central banking was created back in the 17th century. And ever since then, the the central bank has a power we all wish we had, the ability to create money, which would then be used in the marketplace to buy goods and services. We can't do it as individuals, so why should we have an institution to literally create money out of thin air? In the old days, uh, gold and silver were money, and they had to be mined, and there was a lot of resources needed in order to get new money, new real money into the marketplace. And so the increase in gold and silver in the old days was very small compared to the existing stock of gold and silver. Today, 
the Federal Reserve and other central banks can literally create trillions of dollars overnight. In fact, uh, since the uh, since we had the uh, great uh, pandemic uh, lockdown of early 2020, great not in the sense of good, great because it was so large, uh, the money supply has exploded in the United States. Um, it went from I think five trillion to 20 trillion dollars. It's an enormous increase in the supply of money. And what are we seeing today? Prices are rising. Um, Companies are having a hard time finding workers at their wages that they'd like to pay. So they're all boosting wages because employees know, workers know that inflation's rising. They're unwilling to accept a, a, a meager salary in order to go into the marketplace. So this is, this is the great disruptor, inflation. And it's caused by central banking having the power to print money. It's that simple. It's not complicated. Uh, there's evidence throughout history about the boom-bust cycle which is uh, generated by the Federal Reserve and other central banks manipulating interest rates in order to, quote, stimulate the economy. A free market economy does not, any, does not need stimulation. The stimulation is consumer wants and needs. And then you have entrepreneurs meeting those needs in the marketplace by providing the products and services that people want. So a free market economy is, in essence, an outgrowth of who we are as, as a species, people who have needs. And there are people who provide those needs. Those are the business people, either the mom and pop shop on Main Street or the larger corporation in our community or even the multinational corporations. So it works very harmoniously. But as we know, government spending and taxes and uh, creating money disrupts that natural process, what I call the organic economy. And so therefore, I wrote this book to help business people navigate this boom-bust cycle, which is getting worse and worse as time goes on. Uh, the, the lockdown was not a typical boom-bust cycle. It was, it was an implosion because of, of the government closing up businesses. And um, we're going to have another bust somewhere down the road. And in the book, I explain what signs to look for in order to work your business so you don't get caught up in a downturn, which may cause your business to, uh, to really close or downsize tremendously. So again, the book is my first business book on how to for business people. And it's, um, and it's a book that could be used by, again, the mom and pop owner or the uh, CEO of a major corporation, because we know a bust is coming. The question is when, and um, I think it's, gonna, it's been postponed because the Federal Reserve has created so much money the last uh, 18 months that we're probably gonna see an, another uh, boom. We're basically seeing an everything bubble at this point where housing prices have gone through the roof in some communities, 20, 30, 40% year over year, which is not natural. In a, in a free market economy, prices not only are relatively stable, but they go, they go down. And that's been the beauty of the history of capitalism, a free enterprise over the decades is that new products come into the market and because of greater productivity, prices come down, as we've seen for high-definition television and other high-tech items, and even some services have come down. Even with the um, even with the um, rise in oil prices from a year ago, I think it's about 60% increase from a year ago, in real terms, gasoline prices are relatively inexpensive compared to people's incomes of, what, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So again, um, the main thing that uh, the book talks about is how to identify the cycle, the peaks, the troughs, and how you can navigate your business so you can don't get caught up in the euphoria of the boom where you overexpand and then you have a bust. 
and then you find you may be in bankruptcy or liquidation or be, being taken over because you uh, didn't follow the guidelines I have in the book. All right. I want to get to a few of those. And of course, people are going to have to get the book to really understand your, your point. But before we get to some of the things that you say about you know, how to survive this and how to, how to navigate it, I really like the fact that you've got kind of a little side-by-side of all the different schools of thought. I, I can't think of another book that succinctly sets them up next to each other because I, I remember when I went to college, you know, not knowing nothing, uh, even less than now, <laughs> and I took microeconomics my first semester in college, and I just loved it. I thought it was great. I got an A in the course. I got a hundred on everything, the final, the midterm, all the every all the assignments. I actually went to the professor and said, you know, I should get more than an A for this, right? I mean, <laughs> don't you have something higher than that? He said, no, that's all I got for you. I'm sorry. The next semester I had the same professor in the same room and he was a great, great guy. And I sat in the same seat and I took introduction to macroeconomics and all of a sudden I'm raising my hand all the time. This can't be right, you know, because really what they teach you in college in economics is either Keynesianism or monetarism or some jumble of each, right? And right. Uh, you never hear about the Austrian school. So you talk about Keynesianism, uh, monetarism, the supply siders, and then also the Austrian school. What does Keynesianism, monetarism, and supply siders all have in common? Well, I think they all believe that it's important that we have a central bank that creates money and that keeps interest rates low. Uh, they don't believe in free markets. The supply side to say they do, they say they believe in free markets, but um, as the late Murray Rothbard pointed out, the supply side is a basically um, a free market welfare state types. They really like the welfare state and they don't wanna shrink the welfare state. They think it's okay. Uh, they just don't want it to grow very fast as as the Keynesians do. And the monitors just look at money and they don't look at this uh, as at the economy from the from the perspective of the entrepreneur and capital. And uh, that's why I, th I think one of the weak links of monetarism is they have no explanation as to why the cycle occurs, except to say that um, the Fed was too tight. Well, the Fed is tight because the economy is overheating and they don't want inflation to run away like we had in the late 70s and uh, early 70s where we had double digit inflation. So the monetarists have a very naive view of the economy and the Keynesians just have this view that uh, uh, government spending is uh, an important component of a market economy when that's just totally false. Entrepreneurs meet the needs of consumers, and the Austrian school has a very well thought out view of entrepreneurship and how entrepreneurs and capital make the economy tick. And I, as I like to point out to my students when I was teaching, is that production comes before consumption. You can't be a consumer unless you first produce something, either as a business owner or a worker who gets a paycheck for the work that they've done producing something. So I tell my students, I can't consume as a college professor unless I first teach and get a paycheck. So the Keynesians have the view that consumption is the key to the economy because they keep on saying 70% uh, of the US economy is consumption. Well, in order to get that consumption, you have to first produce a lot of stuff to get to the marketplace. And we're seeing this now with the supply chain problem. Consumers can't consume unless goods are produced and shipped to the marketplace. So it just turns upside down the whole notion that consumption is driving the economy. No, production drives the economy because if production is what is being produced that consumers want, everyone is happy. The people who mine 
uh, raw materials, who process the raw materials, who shape them into uh, products that we need. And uh, they wind up on the shelves of uh, consumers or in Amazon where people uh, order online with the other online retailers. So again, it's a very harmonious process of a free market economy. And we just don't need the government overseeing it, which I think is the myth of uh, traditional economic analysis. Yeah, and, and even the Keynesians who have, as you said, a little bit of a theory like, well, it's when aggregate demand drops, but they don't have an explanation for why that is. Everything's going great, and all of a sudden, for no reason at all, aggregate demand drops, and supposedly that makes us poorer when, I don't know, saving money seems like it should make you richer. You've got to read the book, folks, to really understand the distinctions he makes here, but they're very important that you understand the different schools of thought because you're almost exclusively told on you know network television either the Keynesian or monetarist system, and then they you know sometimes will disparage the supply siders, but for the wrong reasons. So, you know, get the book and and let's get to the meat of the book, which is you say that you've got a plan to help people navigate this imperfect system and survive it or, or thrive in it. I mean, I seem to remember that either Mises or Rothbard or both said one can never know when the boom is at its peak or when the bust is at its nadir. How can somebody figure this out? Well, again, I did a deep dive in a lot of the economic data that uh, the Federal Reserve publishes that shows the correlation between various uh, variables and the beginning of recessions. And the best one that I found is, and this is talked about in in the mainstream media, is the inverted yield curve when short-term rates go above long-term rates. And if you look at a chart of the inverted yield curve on the Federal Reserve database, you see that the yield curve inverts about a year or so before the recession begins. And why does that, why does the yield curve invert? Well, in normal yield curve, you basically have short-term rates below long-term rates because there's more risk by lending money for the long-term. And so when the Federal Reserve sees that inflation is heating up or accelerating, they start to withdraw some of the liquidity that they put into the uh, financial system by buying uh, assets they have on their balance sheet. That takes money out of the banking system. So there's less liquidity. Demand for credits still stays relatively the same. So interest rates go up and therefore, a lot of businesses that were relying on short-term interest rates at low rates to keep their businesses afloat see that the uh, rates are going up and they, they start to get a little bit nervous and they start maybe may, uh, be laying off some people. And uh, this is a snowball effect that takes place. And uh, by the way, at the end of 2019, the yield curve inverted for a very brief period, reveal, indicating that we're going to have a recession sometime in 2020 or 2021. But then the pandemic hit in early 2020, and the Fed just flooded the economy with money, kept interest rates at 0%, and, uh, uh, and therefore, that created that big boom in the stock market. The stock market is up, what, oh, uh, 100% since uh, the bottom of March of 2020. And now employment has increased because people are going back to work. And so all this money is sloshing around the financial system, not only in America, but around the world. And it's causing inflation. It's causing what people have called the everything bubble. And uh, the bust is coming. And uh, we just have to wait for the yield curve to invert. Another indicator that Warren Buffett uses, by the way, is a pretty smart guy uh, who made a lot of money in the stock market with Berkshire Hathaway as a CEO. Uh, There's what's called the Buffett indicator, the value of um, 
the stocks to the uh, GDP, and that's at an all-time high right now. And when that happened back in 2007, what happened? The housing bubble burst. So we are at the pinnacle of valuation in terms of the stock market to the economy. And the question is, how long can this last? And that's the $64,000 question. So we have two very key indicators, the inverted yield curve and stock valuation that uh, could give us the perfect storm somewhere down the road. There's another interesting indicator in terms of the stock market and the price of oil, which uh, one investment analyst um, uh, put together, not knowing the reason, but he shows when the price of oil peaks, the stock market peaks 10 years later. So the stock market, um, uh, the price of oil peaked in 2014. That means the stock market should peak in 2024. And then the oil price peaked in 2018, 2019. That means the, uh, the stock market should peak in later in this uh, decade. So we may see something of the 2020s that's reminiscent of the 1920s, where you had a couple of uh, minor recessions in the 20s, but the stock market was on a big tear, and, and we know what happened in 1929, <laughs> and until the bottom 90% uh, decline later. So I'm not predicting that. No one can predict the magnitude of a decline in the stock market, but uh, we've seen 50% declines in the post-war period uh, during recessions, and we did see a 35% decline during the pandemic uh, burst, bubble bursting in uh, 20 uh, March and February, March of 2020. And what did we see in October, 1987? We saw a 22% decline in one day. Now that's a real possibility, I think, somewhere in the future. We may see a 10, 15, 20% drop in one day uh, because people will get nervous around the world and just exit the stock market on one day or one week. And uh, that's a. I think that is something that, uh, we should be aware of. But again, what happened in 87? Greenspan was there as chairman of the Fed, and he flooded the economy with money, which exacerbated the, uh, the uh, boom-bust cycle until the uh, bubble burst in 1990 with the savings and loan crisis. So again, we have all, these, all this evidence that these booms and busts keep reoccurring because the Fed keeps on making the same mistake, which I call in my chapter, wash, rinse, and repeat. <laughs> they flood the economy with money, we get a boom that's unsustainable. Inflation heats up. The, the Fed starts raising interest rates to stop the inflation or mitigate it. And then we get the bust occurring. But the problem is not the bust. The problem is the boom, the unsustainable boom, which is a mistake that most schools of thought make. They say the boom is great. Let's keep it going. But the Austrians say, no, the boom is the problem. If you didn't have this boom causing all these bubbles, in various sectors of the economy, then the you wouldn't have there wouldn't be a recession to correct the uh, mistakes of, of the boom. So I want to get your opinion on this, just for my own personal gratification. I think the listeners would like to hear it too. Which is okay. I, I remember when uh, Trump was running for office in 2016, and he actually said the forbidden word. The I think the way he said it was like the Fed's acting political. And he was basically making the point that any positive economic metrics at the uh, tail end of the Obama administration. That was just the Fed blowing up a bubble, as you just said. And then the minute he gets in there, it seemed like nothing changed. I mean, as even before he cut taxes or the Congress cut taxes and he signed them, he's you know out there tweeting, look, highest stock market ever. So was there anything real about the, the supposed boom while Trump was president 
And were we about to have a bust before the artificially imposed close down of 2020? I do remember the yield curve was inverting in early 2020, late 2019, and all this nonsense with the repo market, which I had never heard about before. Were we about to have a bust or was it going to go on for a while longer? Or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, we were going to have a bust, like I said, uh, because the yield curve was inverting, the Fed was raising rates. And if you remember, Trump publicly uh, criticized Powell for raising interest rates during 2019 because the Fed was getting very nervous about all the quantitative easing it had done since 2008, 2009, when the housing bubble burst. And so uh, that was a 10-year period of quantitative easing, and uh, but the Fed tapers after a while. And as interest rates were rising, uh, Trump said, hey, in his mind, he was saying, I don't want a rising interest rate environment in in the election year of 2020, because this may hurt the stock market and hurt the economy. And therefore, that may uh, uh, impact my uh, re-election chances. So instead of keeping keeping quiet about the stock market and uh, and the Fed, he should have said, hey, I cut taxes, I deregulated the economy, we have low unemployment, that's a good economy. What the Fed does is uh, they're responsible for, that's what he should have said. And uh, in fact, in 2015, I think, he said on the Joe Scarborough show, we're in one big fat bubble. So he knew back then that we were in a bubble and it just kept on expanding during his administration. But the president is not responsible for the bubble to the only to the extent that he's badgering the Federal Reserve, like Nixon did in 1971 with Arthur Burns, that gave us the uh, bubble that led to the rising price of oil and um, and uh, the, the big recession, 73, 74. So Trump didn't play it right politically. And um, and uh, he made a series of missteps with COVID in early 2020 and with the uh, with the Russian hoax that we now know was uh, a real hoax, not just what Trump said, but the evidence suggests that, that this was totally a phony uh, collusion between uh, Trump and, and the Russians. So he made a series of missteps, which I think cost him dearly um, in the re-election. Whether it, there was fraud or not, I'm not. Uh, I don't have the evidence in front of me uh, to to make that claim. But the point is, the economy goes through these cycles no matter who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. I wrote an article for the uh, Eastern Economics Association several years ago pointing this out. It doesn't matter who the Fed chairman is. They do the same thing, inflate, 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 and then what? Cut back when inflation gets out of control. Now they're doing something extremely dangerous, Tom, is that inflation's running at 6% year over year, and we're getting 0% on our savings accounts. This has never happened before. We are really getting, to use a technical term, shafted by the Federal Reserve. I mean, there's evidence that literally trillions of dollars have been moving from the pockets of savers to Wall Street because they're benefiting from the low interest rates and corporate corporate America is benefiting from the low interest rates. But the average person, only if you're in that market for a house, do you benefit from low mortgage rates. But otherwise, uh, if you have if you, if you have saved $100,000 in a savings account, you're getting virtually nothing. You should be getting at least 6%. Every undergraduate business student knows that the nominal rate is the real rate plus the inflation premium. Well, the inflation premium for the last year has been 6%. So we should be getting 6% plus 2%. We should be getting 8% on our savings account. I'd settle for 5 
instead. Uh, but uh, th this is another example of how the Federal Reserve creates enormous inequality in our society. So if you know, the Bernie Sanders of the world, the AOCs in Congress are worried about income inequality and wealth inequality, they should call for the Fed to stop inflating because that would drive uh, prices down and it would, uh, uh, it would lower the uh, net worth of wealthy individuals. Now, I'm not suggesting that is an ideal situation, but the point is, once you have a bubble, it's going to burst and, and, and uh, a lot of people get hurt when the bubble bursts. that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. The other thing about inflation in our system for really the past century is that it's not that deflation, they always try to scare us with deflation. Oh my God, if we have deflation, yes, if you are in debt, deflation can hurt you. And our system encourages everybody to be in debt, at least with their house, usually with some cars. And of course, deflation is a bad thing, but it doesn't hurt everybody, right? If you've saved money, deflation is a good thing. And um, during the 19th century, when we had a more honest, stable monetary system, people used to just save up cash for their retirement. They didn't have to be a financial genius and, and navigate all this. So it's not the case that just left to itself, the economy would produce all these terrible effects for ordinary people. And, and you say that in the book. And the other thing I want to get to before we get to your medical book is, okay, I could see where based on what we've said so far, um, people who do finance, people who do investing could learn a lot about how to navigate these booms and busts. What is a guy like a painting contractor who's got two or three crews out there? You know what it's like to run a small business. That's all you do is try to get sales, get the work done, stay on schedule. How does that person navigate the boom bust cycle? That's a great question because, uh, small business owners are really caught between the so-called rock and a hard place because when the economy turns down, a lot of people are going to postpone projects like painting their house, painting the interior, uh, what have you. Businesses may postpone painting. So th this is where creativity comes into place, that you have to demonstrate that what you're, what you're providing is value. And maybe you're going to have to cut prices 10, 15, 20%. And maybe you're going to have to take a cut in salary yourself and ask your workers to uh, take a cut. But the point is 80%, 90% of something is better than 100% of nothing. 
Uh, that's an old adage in, in, in the business world. So it, if, if things get really dicey for small business owners like this contractor, he may have to um, try to really hustle to get work in terms of, hey, I'll do this and uh, we'll do a deferred payment, let's say, for three months, for six months. But here's the, here's the key point, Tom. And this is what every small business owner has to realize is that the good times don't last forever. And during a boom, you should be building up cash reserves in order to tide you over when the bust occurs. That to me is finance 101, whether you're a small business owner, you're a big corporation. In fact, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has $140 billion in cash. So he's not out there buying overpriced companies. He's waiting for prices to come down so he can buy value. And that's what he's been doing all his professional career. And look what's happened to Berkshire stock. It's over $400,000 a share, and he's worth $100 billion. So over the long term, inflation is going to bail out a lot of people, especially if you have uh, the ability to analyze companies like he has and uh, buy quality companies. And inflation raises the value of these companies or the price of these companies. So for the small business owner, this is the time to build up cash. Put away that 2 3 4% of your profits, 5%. And unfortunately, a lot of, as you know, a lot of individuals are living, what, paycheck to paycheck. And businesses, if they're living from payroll to payroll, they're going to be in deep trouble when the recession hits. So my advice is build up your cash reserves because that's going to help you navigate the downturn better than any other uh, policy that you could implement. And of course, uh, make sure that you have good relationships with customers and now is the time to maybe do some more advertising saying, hey, what, when times get tough, we're here for you. Or some slogan like that, where they, can, where they can get businesses that they otherwise would not get. Yeah, I guess understanding the, the world that you live in. And unfortunately, that is not a free market system. You know, you've got to live in the world. So you might as well know a little bit about it and, and know how to be prepared. That's a great point. I want to get to your book on healthcare, because after everything everyone's heard, what you've just said about finance and the, and the money system, I saw the subtitle to your book, the case for a single payer system. And I said, what? <laughs> Not you too, Murray, come on. But I think um, when you say single payer system, you mean something a little different than maybe AOC or Bernie Sanders means. Well, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in an era in the 1950s in uh, New York City uh, where your parents took you to the uh, doctor. They paid $5 for the office visit. There was no insurance claim forms. They just they pay, It was a cash transaction. We got a prescription if we needed one. We went to the local pharmacy, no insurance forms. We paid a few dollars for, uh, for a prescription, and that was it. And when my father had a major operation in 1961, he was a blue-collar worker, he had Blue Cross Blue Shield Major Medical. They took that took care of the operation in a quality setting in a hospital in Manhattan. That's what I envisioned. That's what I grew up with. And it seems that we've gone so far away from that model of cash payments for routine uh, uh, medical care and uh, uh, drugs that we would need. Uh, but what changed, of course, was Medicare, Medicaid in 1965 plus the inflation that kicked in in the mid-60s with the Great Society programs. And ever since then, medical care inflation has been the greatest 
increase in the consumer price index for the past 50 plus years. And it's no accident when you throw money into the system, when you um, throw money into the medical care system through Medicare and Medicaid, and then you have employers uh, being the gatekeeper for employees with uh, their ones that are paying for uh, insurance, the, the patient, doctor-patient relationship has been sort of um, uh, downplayed in our society. And, and physicians are basically working at the behest of insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid, as opposed to being entrepreneurs. We need doctors to be entrepreneurs, to be good practitioners of their craft, which is healing people and, and doing it in a setting where no one's looking over their shoulder, where they're putting in the right codes for Medicare and Medicaid. So the single payer is the individual, the family, which I grew up with, and you needed insurance for the big bills that were uh, too expensive to pay out of pocket. But in the research that I did for this book, Tom, I got to tell you, in 2021, the total cost of medical care in this country will will be $4 trillion. It was $3.8 trillion last year. And with all the costs for um, COVID and what have you, uh, but then again, some people postponed medical care because of COVID. And so we may not reach that 4 trillion mark, but it, it, it's it's gonna happen one day if it didn't happen in, if it, it's not gonna happen in 2021. And from the research I've done, I would say 50% of that could be reduced if we had a free market medical care system. Let me give you a couple of examples. I interviewed one doctor here in Southwest Florida who's a direct primary care physician, which means that the uh, she caps her patient load at 800 instead of a typical doctor's office, which has about 2,000 patients. So she and, and the patients pay a monthly fee to see the doctor anytime office hours or maybe a telemedicine a call, whatever. Well, she had a patient who had no insurance. He needed an operation. The local hospital quoted him $20,000 for the procedure. She said, you got to call the surgery center of Oklahoma, which is a cash only business uh, founded by Keith Smith and I think another physician. He called up the uh, surgery center of Oklahoma. They quoted him for the operation, including transportation to Oklahoma from Florida, $5,000. That's a 75% discount from what the local hospital was charging. Another example was I attended the annual conference of the Free Market Medical Association in August, and I spoke to the HR director of an upper Midwest company, and they were really concerned about the increasing insurance premiums. So they contracted with the company to bring a MRI machine uh, to their parking lot in a truck, and uh, the cost of the MRI was $400. That same MRI company went down to the hospital and the hospital charged $5,000 for the MRI. Wow. I mean, it shows you how inflated medical costs are in this country because of third-party pays insurance companies and uh, government involvement with the rules and regulations. So uh, again, the, the evidence to me is quite clear. If we had a free market system where the doctor-patient relationship was, was, was solid and the government was was not overseeing this, we would have uh, medical care costs, I think at least 50% lower than we'd have today. That means $2 trillion would be freed up for investment, for consumption, for philanthropy. And people, instead of pushing paper at doctors, offices, and hospitals, would be doing more productive work in, in either the medical field or other fields. So again, um, everything I've, I've uh, read about, spoken to doctors about, is that um, we, we are in a, a medical financial crisis, if you will. And the way to get out of it is implement the uh, basic 
premises, pr principles that I outline in my book on universal medical care. What do you say to somebody who says, okay, I know we spend a lot on Medicare and Medicaid, but the reason is we tried a free market approach before that, and nobody could afford their doctor bills, at least not the elderly and the poor. What do you say to that? Well, here, here's how we, we solve that issue. I have a chapter in the book about nonprofits. I helped create a nonprofit medical um, clinic in uh, Northern New Jersey based upon the Volunteers of Medicine model that was uh, started in the mid nineties in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And people can go to their website, the Volunteers in Medicine Institute, I think it's called, and just Google volunteersinmedicine.org and it would come up. It's based upon the premise of the old mutual aid societies we had in America prior to the Great Depression, where people at the local level got together voluntarily to solve problems of unemployment before we had unemployment insurance, of uh, 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 funerals, of um, uh, medical care, and a whole host of social issues that were taken care of at the local level. This is the quintessential American approach to helping people who need a temporary bridge to get back to financial independence. So from a philosophical point of view, that's the way to go. Uh, a voluntary society instead of a coercive society. Remember, the government doesn't have more money. It only can spend money when it taxes the people or borrows from the people. So the big, big myth is that uh, the government somehow is an additional resource for the society. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> it it co-ops society. This is the whole point that the that the leftists and collectivists don't understand. There's an opportunity cost when the government gets involved in something. It means that there's less money available for the private sector, for private individuals to do what they want to do. And the American people we know are the what most generous in the world. 80% of the world's philanthropical uh, contributions are made by Americans. And uh, the, uh, the other point is uh, people are very uh, giving. Look at all the GoFundMe events that take place when people... Uh, a child needs an operation and the family doesn't either have insurance or whatever. And they raise a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars literally overnight. So it just shows you that there's a lot of goodwill in America. All we have to do is downsize the federal government, downsize the military budget. It's not a defense budget. It's a military budget that's spending what? Eight hundred billion dollars this year on um, places in the world that most people can't find on a map. And so we need to go back to the limited government approach that the founders envisioned, uh, that uh, uh, Jefferson and other presidents uh, were trying to cement in America, but unfortunately it was overturned by Lincoln and others who had a different approach to government. And of course it was cemented in um, the Federal Reserve, the income tax, the New Deal, the Great Deal, and now we're living through the, uh, the, uh, the nightmare of uh, the welfare warfare state. You made a couple of good points. I, I remember that de Tocqueville, when he came through America and, and wrote his Democracy in America, that was the principal thing that astonished him was how much governments did in other countries and how much Americans did through voluntary societies, even gasp the roads <laughs> were built by private companies. And that doesn't mean the uh, government taxed everybody and just hired a contractor. That means the private company came up with the capital themselves. They own the road out here in Western New York, where I live. People might be familiar with the Buffalo Bills playing a place called Orchard Park. 
Well, Orchard Park wouldn't exist if it weren't for a private road builder called Alan Potter, who built the roads from that area that became Orchard Park in Hamburg into the city of Buffalo. So yes, voluntary action works. And and you don't really, I mean, although Americans are generous, you tell me if I'm wrong, I think economics was invented around the idea by Adam Smith that even people working in their own self-interest, you know, as long as property rights are protected, do more good for everybody else than the so-called do-gooders of the world. Well, they, see, the problem with the people on the left is they, they think uh, people are, quote, selfish and greedy and therefore are not um, altruistic. Well, altruism has to come from the inner soul, if you will, of a person. That means you write a check or you volunteer at a, at a hospital or a, or a clinic or a shelter or a food bank, whatever the case may be. And it, here it is, uh, Thanksgiving uh, week. And people are doing volunteer work all across the country, giving out turkeys. People are donating their time. Habitat for Humanity. Uh, this morning, I drove uh, my wife to an appointment, and there was a Habitat for Humanity van passing us by. So Habitat for Humanity is doing great work. You have tunnels to tower, building houses for veterans. Uh, so again, the goodwill in America is second to none, probably in the universe, not just in, in the world, because it's amazing what people will do when they keep more of their own money and provide um, uh, time and resources to uh, organizations to help people. And, but the key point I want to make here, and this is the key point, is that these organizations, these nonprofits, should be working to help people become financially independent. That's the key here. Whether you're a, a single mother or a couple that's struggling, the goal is to be financially independent. And that is something I learned as a youngster. I saw my father go to work. I saw him uh, drive a cab in New York City. And he, and he always took care of his family. He never said, oh, woe is us. Let's get a government handout some way. No, he worked hard. He worked five, six, seven days a week. And that was my model for growing up. And I wish more people would embrace that type of uh, worldview and not say, well, if, if we, there's a need, we have, there has to be a government program, either at the local level, the state level, or the federal level. And I, 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 I uh, really am opposed to that mindset, that cultural mindset, is that the government has to get involved in people's lives, just as we've seen in this COVID situation, where the government is just overriding people's desire for um, uh, medication that is not approved by the FDA or the uh, or Medicare or Medicaid. And this to me is very troubling as a son of Holocaust survivors, where we're seeing the same type of um, authoritarianism that, and who knows where that would lead in America, but we're seeing what's happening around the world is that people are starting to push back against the draconian policies of their governments. Yeah. All the people we fought wars against had a big interest in government health care, didn't they? I mean, Hitler and Stalin and even Bismarck back in uh, in the 1800s. And if you wanted to find one, one, not the only, but one characteristic of just about every authoritarian government is they wanted to run the healthcare system from one centralized center of authority. So another thing, you know, you mentioned those mutual aid societies. And it just occurs to me, and this is something that's kind of implicit in your book, the government or proponents of government will always see something that's imperfect because nothing can ever be perfect. And they'll say, we have this thing that's not completely perfect. So let's give it to the government. And the results are always worse. And you could take roads, you could take healthcare, you could take just about anything. The government has taken over and they make it a lot worse. And then if it's around for long enough, people just don't even realize 
hey, you know, you don't have to live with this misery. You know, it doesn't have to cost half your income just to make sure that if you get sick, you can get treated. It had, it wasn't always like this. It doesn't have to continue to be like this. And that's really the point you're making in your book. Well, people don't like change. They get used to what's, what's uh, the status quo. And therefore they say, okay, I'm content. I'm not, I may not make it the best medical care. I mean, it may be too expensive, but uh, listen, I, I don't want any change. And, and this is why the welfare state is such an insidious uh, institution policy because it makes people um, uh, get used to government control and uh, of their lives. And uh, we just have to break that cultural mindset. And that's one reason I wrote the book, but also to provide a blueprint of how we get out of this. And it could happen in a few years. All we need is the willpower to do it. And it's not going to come from the, from the politicians. It's going to come from the people. It's going to be a grassroots effort to say, listen, we want control of our medical care. We, we want to pay for things and um, and have doctors respond to us because right now it it is really a nightmare, especially like we did. We just moved from uh, New Jersey to Florida and getting uh, medical care has become a challenge. You have to find the right doctors that you're comfortable with and you have to uh, get referrals. And we started getting referrals and uh, so far it's working out. But it, it's very frustrating at times to try to get an appointment. Uh, you'd call up and they, the appointment would be three, four, four five months in, advent, uh, in the future, which is not the way entrepreneurs serve their, their customers. And I use the customers in quotes. Patients are customers. They're, they're customers of medical care. So they should be treated the same way customers are treated in, uh, in the marketplace. I mean, there are two rules in business. One, the customer is always right. Number two, see the Rule number one. Yeah. <laughs> and if entrepreneurs uh, follow that, they'll have successful businesses uh, going back to the boom bust, even during a downturn. Uh, if they work with their customers, um, they, they, I think they can get through the, the boom bust. The same thing with doctors. Doctors have to be entrepreneurial, but the doctors are under the thumb of the insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid and state licensing boards. So they're not independent entrepreneurs, practitioners. They're, they're basically become an arm of um uh, insurance companies, big pharma, and the government. Well, I, I, we could talk all day on these, but I want people to get the books. And really, both books are packed with information. They're very realistic. They give you a blueprint. And like you said, we could have free market healthcare in a very short period of time if people would just change their thinking a little. What's the best website for them to go to to get the books, get more information about what you're doing? Well, here's the beauty part. The publisher of my boom bust cycle is offering a 20 uh, has a 20% discount and you can go to murraysabrin.com and the link will take you to the uh, publisher's website where you can enter the code boom20, which is on the flyer that's posted on the uh, my blog, murraysabrin.com. And uh, this is a great book to give to business students. I mean, if you have business students in your family, this is the great book for the holiday, or you have a friend or a relative that's a small business owner, this would be a great book for them. And if, uh, you, if you're a CEO or CFO, uh, you want to give it to your, your um, managers to, to get, for them to have a sense of where we are in the economy, uh, that would be a, another uh, a way to uh, spread these ideas about how to navigate the boom-bust cycle. The Universal Medical Care book is available on Amazon. Just punch in Universal Medical Care. It's available in Kindle and paperback. And both these books, I think, uh, are two, I, I don't think I could have written two more important books for the American people. 
why we need to change our medical care structure and how small, uh, how business owners can navigate the boom bust cycle. So to me, these are very valuable books for people who want a better America, um, to build America back better, to, to use a term that Biden likes to use. But we're not going to do it through collectivism. We're going to do it through free markets and uh, and getting the Federal Reserve out of the uh, uh, manipulation of the economy through interest rates and printing money. So <coughs> my goal is that, that uh, tons of people read the book for the, for the upcoming um, year. It's a great gift for the holidays. And I just wish uh, people... Um, Take advantage of the twenty uh, percent discount at uh, at the uh, at the uh, publisher's website by accessing my website uh, murraysaber.com and getting the universal medical care book. So we can have the, an, uh, an adult discussion about where medical care should go in the United States. Okay, Murray. Well, we'll link to your website. That's m u r r a y s a b r i n dot com, murraysaber.com and your books. And I want to thank you for being on. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure and and happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.